Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, welcome to Center Street. Those of you who are joining us online, also those of you who are gathered here at Central Campus, as well as those of you who are meeting together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, uh, down in Bridgeland and South Calgary, and also those of you meeting in Northwest Calgary, um, in the Crowfoot Theatres. We're in a series in the book of Colossians, and today we're continuing our study uh, through the second chapter of this wonderful letter. And so I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Colossians. And um, as you're doing that, would you please stand and join me in reading a portion of this chapter together? So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person always goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. Thank you for inspiring Paul to write these words. Lord, help us to understand more fully your intended meaning here, to apply it to our lives. Give us the courage to do that. And Lord, we pray for soft hearts that we'd be open to what you want to say to us and to responding in whatever way you'd have us to. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Many years ago, while I was in doctoral studies in the United States, my wife Gwen and I and several other people from the church that we were attending at the time uh, were invited to meet and discuss the possibility of forming uh, a small group, a community group of sorts, a group committed to growing together in the faith, to supporting each other, uh, serving in our weekend services, um, and also reaching out to our community. All of us uh, ended up signing up uh, with the exception of one couple who all named Ken and Kathy. That's not really their true names. And Ken and Kathy indicated they just didn't have the margin in their lives 
to get involved more uh, than to attend just the weekend services. Even that was a stretch for them, they said. Well, about a year later, I got a call from Ken. It took me a minute to kind of dial in to who he was because I hadn't seen him since that meeting that we'd had a year earlier. Anyways, Ken sounded like he had just won a lottery, like he sounded like he'd been a changed person. He, he was upbeat, he was energetic, he was enthusiastic about life. And after some small talk, he asked whether we might meet together as couples sometime because they just wanted to share with us something that was totally changing their lives. Well, that sounded really kind of interesting, and so we met with them, and we learned that what transformed their lives so dramatically was a multi-level marketing business. And they showed us charts, and they told us stories of people who were now independently wealthy and freed up to live their dreams. And Ken said, you know, here's the best part. The founders of the business are Christians. The focus of the business is Christ-centered. He said, for us Christians, I mean, it's a win-win plan. We get to provide people with quality products, become financially independent, and serve Jesus by helping others become financially independent. Now, even though we thought it sounded appealing, we decided not to sign up, much to their disappointment. But I share that story with you because I'm always amazed at the energy, the time, and the resources that people will invest in what they believe in. I mean, a year earlier, Ken and Karen, they said they had no margin in their lives. No margin to be part of a missional group, no margin to serve, no margin to serve in the community, and little margin to even just attend a worship service like this once a week. And now even though nothing had changed in their lives, in the sense that they still had their regular day jobs, still had all the responsibilities they had before, somehow they now had lots of margin. In fact, they had several evenings a week available to meet with people like us to share the good news of this incredible business opportunity. A couple of years later, we met with Ken and Karen at a mall. And we talked about an assortment of little things, and then I asked them, how's your new business going? And at that point, Ken kind of looked down at the, the floor, and he said, oh, wow, he said, that didn't work out. You know, some of the saddest conversations I have is with people who sort of woke up one day realizing that they trusted in the wrong things. That they settled for less than God's best for them. And this is the danger that Paul addresses here in Colossians. That we not put our ultimate trust in the wrong things. Stuff that won't last. That we not allow even good things to distract us, to take our eyes off Jesus, but that we always keep Jesus at the center of our lives, that we, that we make him supreme. Because anything we put ahead of him will be the source of our greatest worry, 
frustration, our greatest fears, and disappointments. The reality is sometimes for any number of reasons, we can go through a bit of a spiritual slump where we're just sort of coasting in our faith. And it's at times like this when we're in a rather dangerous place, a very vulnerable place, because we begin to think that we might need something new or something more than Jesus. And in the passage we just read together, Paul warns us that there are all kinds of seductive voices in our culture and even in our churches that seek to entice us to shift our focus and our commitment away from Christ to something or someone else. In verse 8, he writes, See to it that no one takes you captive, that no one kidnaps you through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental forces of this world rather than on Christ. That depends on human ideas rather than on Christ. And he goes on to describe several philosophies or religions that can kidnap our affection and allegiance to Christ, even kill our spiritual growth and, our, and the freedom that we enjoy in Christ. We looked at the first two last time. I'm just going to give you a summary of them. The first deception is the religion of special knowledge. In the early church, there were those, we refer to them now as Gnostics, who attempted to intimidate Christians with their superior knowledge. They would say or imply, well, if you knew what we know, if you weren't so naive, if you were enlightened as we are, well, then you'd realize that Jesus isn't enough. You'd realize that Jesus isn't the only way and that Jesus can't meet all of your needs. Now, we're surrounded with similar thinking today. We live in a post-Christian culture, a culture that not only disrespects the Christian faith, but actually opposes it. A culture that seeks politically to marginalize Christian influence in every way possible. A culture that seeks to snuff out the voice and the influence of Christians by labeling us as intolerant and narrow-minded. In certain arenas like our universities, there are some professors who will use the knowledge card to intimidate and even humiliate Christians, often teaching or implying that anyone who believes in God, anyone that would believe that Jesus is the only way, is naive, is really a moron, is simpleton. And sadly, many close the door to Jesus Christ, which is so tragic because if they really took the time to investigate the compelling evidence for the Christian faith they wouldn't walk away from Jesus they'd embrace him as Lord and King and follow him wholeheartedly as I said last time I challenge everyone to give high priority to investigate the overwhelming evidence for the Christian faith and to prepare ourselves and our children to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ. This is no small matter. 
Now, by the way, there's a further application here for those of us who are Christians. It's a really subtle application, but we need to be aware of it. I'm sure we've all met people who have become very knowledgeable in certain areas of Christian theology and study. Very knowledgeable on Revelation and the end times, for example, or the theology of healing, or theology of prayer, or deliverance, or the prophetic theology of predestination or the Old Testament Hebrew culture. And this is all fine and good. But those of us who love to study and who love to accumulate knowledge need to be ever so careful that we not let our obsession to grow in our knowledge result in us almost worshiping knowledge and pushing Jesus and a relationship with Jesus to the sidelines of our life. We also need to be careful not to grow proud of our knowledge to the place where we seek to impress others with our knowledge or even use our knowledge to discourage other Christians in their faith and in their growth by intimidating them or criticizing them or judging them with our superior knowledge. Like, for example, not agreeing with the way they pray for healing or not agreeing with them because they see the events of Revelation unfolding differently than we do. All that to say that sometimes we as Christians can also use the knowledge card to intimidate other Christians, to discourage them in their spiritual growth. A second deception is the religion of special behaviors. Look at verse uh, 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Now, Paul's talking about legalism here. Legalism is any attempt on our part to earn God's favor through our own efforts. Now, to be clear, Paul's not saying that we are free to ignore the clear teaching and instructions in the Bible. Rather, he's referring specifically to two things. First, he's saying we are free from following man-made rules. Rules that people come up with that define for them what a true or a genuine Christian looks like. As I said last time, 50 years ago, many in the church that I grew up in believed that good Christian women don't wear makeup. Did you know that? They believed that good Christian men don't have long hair, like I did at the time. That good Christians don't own a television or go to the stampede. And that was only the beginning of a long list of do's and don'ts. In verse 22, Paul says, these rules are destined to fade and to die over time. Why is that? Because they are man-made. He says, don't let human rules 
rob you of your freedom in Christ. Furthermore, Paul's teaching here that we're free not only from man-made rules, but we're also free from the Old Testament diets and festivals and laws. Laws that were intended to serve as a sign of a shadow to prepare us for the coming of Christ and what he would accomplish for us through his death on the cross and his resurrection. Well, friends, uh, Jesus has come, amen? He has come. He lived, he died, he rose again, and because he lives, we no longer need to look at the Old Testament shadows, the diets, the festivals, even the Sabbath laws, because our ultimate rest, which is what the Sabbath pointed to, is now found by putting our trust in Jesus. Jesus is all that we need. A third deception that can kill our spiritual growth and freedom in Christ is the religion of special experiences. Look at verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. So Paul is addressing two issues here that were taking place in the church at Colossae. First of all, there were those who claimed to have visions or special revelations from God. And they were growing proud. It appears they got preoccupied with these special experiences. See, the focus went off Christ and onto these experiences. Because it was a great way to impress others with how spiritual they were and also to get what they wanted. They often left others feeling that, you know what, if you were just a little more spiritual, well, then you'd have these experiences as well. And in verse 18, Paul says, don't let these people disqualify you. Don't let them spiritually intimidate you or convince you that because you haven't had the same experiences or revelations that they've had, that you're somehow spiritually inferior to them now. You know, one of the most important aspects of what it means to be a Christ follower is that we are passionate about listening to God. That we would seek to hear God first and foremost through the Scriptures. That we'd allow God to speak to us through the Scriptures. But also through His promptings, His still small voice. But there are a number of cautions that we need to be mindful of. First of all, be careful not to get prideful which is, of course, what Paul's touching on here. When God speaks to us, it is so important we not use it to manipulate people or things in order to get our own way. If you sense God telling you to do something and it doesn't contradict the teaching and the spirit of the Scriptures, well, that's wonderful. Go do it. It's one of the reasons at the end of services I have us ask those two questions. Lord, what are you saying to me? Lord, what do you want me to do about it? 
But when you believe that you've heard from God about something that involves others, then oh, be ever so humble and ever so careful not to use the God told me line to manipulate others or to get your own way. Many years ago, evangelist Oral Roberts was leading a huge building campaign. He went on television. He said, God has appeared to me. I saw a 700-foot-high Jesus, and he told me that I was to raise $5 million, and if I didn't raise $5 million, he was going to take my life in two months. Now, I'm not going to comment on that, except to say it made international news, as you can well imagine. And I remember when I heard this as a young man thinking, you know, this sure doesn't sound like something that the Jesus I know, the Jesus that I read in the scriptures would do. And very much feeling manipulated that we were going to be responsible for Oral's demise if we didn't pony up the $5 million. Now, I know it's an extreme example. It's also an old example. But friends, this can happen. This can happen in churches. This can happen on television, obviously. This can happen in small groups. This can happen wherever Christians meet. Some narcissistic person begins to manipulate people in a group by saying, God told me to tell you this. God spoke to me and said that we're to do this. You know, if you believe that God has given you a word for someone else, I strongly encourage you to give yourself some time to test it before the Lord and ensure that it's truly from Him and that He really wants you to share it. And then if you really feel the Lord wants you to share it with the person, always say something like, you know, I sense the Lord wants me to share this with you, but I could be mistaken. Because, friends, you could be mistaken. So please, say to that person, encourage that person to take it to prayer. Encourage that person to ensure that it aligns with Scripture and that they receive confirmation themselves from the Lord. Now, of course, I'm not talking here about if you, you know, if God lays on your heart, you know, something like he wants to encourage that person. Like maybe you just feel in your heart you're supposed to tell someone that God loves them or something like that. That's, that's not what we're talking about. This is perhaps a directive. This is perhaps some advice for their future or, or something like that. And be careful not to inflate or to embellish spiritual experiences that you have to make them seem more exciting. If you catch yourself doing this, see it as a sign that pride is at work in your life, that you are trying to impress others with how spiritual you are. And Paul says here in verse 19, those who do this, who aren't genuine, who are making things up, who are embellishing things, have lost connection with Jesus. What they've essentially done is they've pushed Jesus to the sidelines and they've put themselves at the center. 
Furthermore, be careful not to seek spiritual experiences or revelations for the wrong reason. I fully believe that we serve a God who still heals, still does miracles today, and that we need to pray regularly that he will do what we can't do. But we need to be careful that we not seek spiritual experiences just because someone else has had a certain experience. We need to be careful that we don't go from church to church, from seminar to seminar, conference to conference, looking for an experience because someone we know had this experience and I've just got to have this experience. So many times, and I've been at conferences like this, you just get a sense when you, when you kind of, you know, chat with people around you. Everybody's there for what they can get from Jesus. Rather than just worshiping Jesus. If someone you know has a spiritual experience... Don't assume that God wants to do the same for you. Remember the experience that Moses had with the burning bush? I mean, the tree was ablaze with fire, it didn't, it wasn't, but it didn't consume. That would have been something. It would have been something to hear God speak out of that bush too. Now, Henry Blackaby says, if that happened today... Moses would set up a shrine. He would write a bestseller book. And people would come from all over the world to worship at the shrine. And plead with God to do it again. And then attempt to take the blessing back to wherever they came from. Now God can do it again. I mean, he can do anything. But realize that God is incredibly creative and may have something totally different in mind that he wants you to experience or to trust him in. In fact, he may not want to give you some kind of earth-shattering experience at all. And the issue is, are you okay with that? Does it have to be Jesus and something else? Does it have to be Jesus and experience? Don't forget Paul's overarching concern here. He's warning us not to let anything, anything take our focus off of Jesus. He's saying, friends, please don't make the passion of your life seeking after an experience or a sign. No, seek the Lord. Trust him to provide all that you need to grow in your walk with him and to be close with him. He will lead you. He will give you what you need. Trust him. Be careful you don't begin to crave what Jesus can do for you more than Jesus himself and his desire to grow you in your character your faith and trust in Him. I say that because in Matthew chapter 12, the religious leaders came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. It was like, Jesus, um, 
we've been hearing these rumors about, you know, these things that you do, these miracles you do and so forth. So, you know, we'd like you to show one to us. You know, would you mind walking across our swimming pool? I mean, we heard you walked on water. Would you mind doing some kind of miracle for us? Give us some kind of sign that you are who you say you are. They sort of saw Jesus the way people see Santa Claus these days or a vending machine. You put in a request, you put in a coin, and presto, you get what you ask for. But I want you to notice how Jesus responded to them. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. But none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You know, when I think of Jonah in the belly of that great fish, you know, I'm sure that he wasn't looking for a lot of signs. I'm sure he was just looking for an exit. And if I was in his place at that moment, there's only one prayer request that I would have made. Lord, please, please, let me go out the same way I came in. (laughs) But here's the point. Jesus says here, there is really only one ultimate sign that you need to believe in me and my power to save you and to help you live in victory. And that is my resurrection from the grave. That's all you need. That's the only sign you need. Anything else I do is only because I want to bless you, not because you demanded of me. Now make no mistake, I believe God loves to bless us with all kinds of little and big miracles and healings and all the like. He wants us to come to Him and to ask Him for help. That's not what this is, what we're saying here. The issue is is the motivation of our heart. If we're coming to Him and saying, give me, give me, give me, give me, or prove to me, or give me a sign, or whatever. We can pretty be sure on the basis of this Matthew 12 passage that Jesus is grieved when we come to him wanting more of what he can give us than him. And tied in with this, be careful in discerning of those who seem set on always pointing you to more experiences and more signs. Keep pointing you to what God can do for you rather than pointing you first and foremost to Jesus Christ, the promises of Scripture and who we are in Christ. I remind you, you may never have a vision. You may never have a special revelation, but these do not define who you are. You are complete in Jesus Christ. And you can trust him to give you all that you need and to become all that he created you to be.
Now, in verse 18, Paul refers to those who practice the worship of angels. Now, again, in that day, the Gnostics taught that all matter is evil. And therefore, as humans, many many of the, the people of that church in Colossae began to believe that they were not worthy to talk to God directly. And so that led some to try to reach God through angels rather than through Jesus. And of course, this practice and others like it is alive and well today. And the Bible does tell us that angels are real, of course, and we could do an entire message on angels. Don't have time for that. But in some church circles today, people consult and pray to angels as well as saints who have died rather than praying directly to God through Christ. When we pray to God through an angel or through a departed saint, we are disregarding the clear teaching of the Bible. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, Paul wrote this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. The way to the Lord is through Jesus. He's the way. So let me summarize what Paul's saying here. He's concerned that we not settle for anything less than a relationship with Christ alone. In in 2 Corinthians 11.3, I love what he writes. He says, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He's saying, stay focused on Christ. Keep him at the center of your life. Don't let anyone or anything distract you or sidetrack you from that. Don't let anyone intimidate you with their so-called special knowledge. Don't let anyone distract you from the freedom that you have in Jesus Christ by pulling you back, kidnapping you back into, uh, and, and with a consumption with man-made rules and rituals. Don't let a preoccupation with seeking spiritual experiences and signs distract you from cultivating a healthy friendship with Christ. Don't let a TV evangelist get your eyes off Jesus And on to some miracle oil. He's claiming will bless and prosper you in some way if you'll send him a generous financial gift, of course. Don't let the world's definition of success deceive you into putting your hope and your trust in lesser things, in temporary things like money and power, prestige and fame. Because it's just all going to pass away. All these things will fade and die. Only Jesus is a rock upon which you can stand. 
I'll close with this. A number of years ago, a pilot who attends our church called me and, and told me that the jet simulator uh, that they used to train their pilots was available for about an hour and whether I wanted to experience what it was like to fly one of the wide-body planes. So it turned out that one of our sons was available as well, so we headed over right away, and we had the experience of our lives. That 737 jet simulator was unbelievably realistic. The cockpit is identical to the real thing. You know, you taxi down the runway, you feel like you actually are. You know, you take off, you can feel the thrust of the plane. You turn you know, left or right, and you can just feel the plane banking that way. Uh, you look out the window, you see the city of Calgary. I mean, unbelievably realistic. Our pilot friend is a trainer of pilots, and so he sat behind us and sort of told us what to do. With his help, we took off okay. <laughs> and, you know, there was a few moments like that, you know. But when the time came to land that big machine, Oh my. After receiving some basic instructions from our pilot friend, he let us try to land the plane on our own. <laughs> Big mistake. <laughs> so anyways, I tried to imagine, you know, I'm flying this plane, it's full of hundreds of passengers, okay? So that's kind of in the back of my mind. And pretty soon, you know, we're sweating big time. We're trying to aim this thing at the runway, keeping the airspeed right, and, and just the assortment of other things you've got to you know, kind of be doing. So there's, you know, there's, there's these noises that are going off, you know, warning us of stuff, eh, 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 and this and that going off. And, and all of a sudden, you know, we're getting a little too low. And there's this person that comes on, too low, too low, pull up, pull up. And all this is going on. Sirens are blaring everywhere. And shortly thereafter, the screen goes blank. <laughs> You're looking at a preacher who crashed a 737 jet <laughs> and lived to tell about it. Now, let me ask you, if you were to fly to Toronto or anywhere, who would you like as your pilot? Me? No. <laughs> <laughs> or our friend? an instructor of pilots who's logged thousands of hours on similar trips. And here's the point. You know, when it comes to who you're going to trust with your life, when it comes to who you're going to trust to guide you in this life and also to take you safely to the next life, why would you put your hope in anyone or anything other than Jesus Christ? Paul, in no uncertain terms, he makes a strong case here in Colossians that Jesus is more than enough. That he is the invisible God who out of love for us became visible took on human form, not only to identify with us and to show us who God is, but to die for us, and to pay our sins against a holy God. And not only did he die for us, he rose again. He's alive. 
And because he lives, we too shall live forever if we put our trust in him. Jesus is the creator of the universe, says Paul. He's the Lord of the church. He is the savior of the world. He writes in verse 11, he's the head of every power and authority. And when we put our trust in him, says Paul, this same Jesus invades our lives in fullness. And we become his son and daughter forever. This same Jesus, says Paul, did what we could not do for ourselves. In verse 13, he says, when we were dead in our sins and the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made us spiritually alive in Christ. He set us free from our sins and our regrets. He canceled the debt that we owed. He nailed it to the cross. Jesus set us free from a life of trying to pay for our own sins. He set us free from man-made rules. He set us free from trying to be good enough to receive his love and acceptance. He set us free from trying to seek signs and revelations as a way to prove that we're more spiritual to others. He set us free from the lie that true success is found in the accumulation of temporary things. And so we come finally to this last key verse. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Continue to live your lives in him. So how did you receive Christ Jesus as Lord? Did you become a Christ follower because you read the Bible from cover to cover? Or because you've been really good to your neighbor? Or because you've treated your wife really well? Or because you've given significantly of your finances to charitable causes? Or because you've tried to keep the Ten Commandments as best you can? Is that how you become a follower of Christ? No. The law was never given. The Ten Commandments were never given to us as a way to God. Jesus was given to us as a way to God. You see, the Ten Commandments, they just simply, they're like a mirror. They show us that we have sin in our lives, but they point us of our need for a Savior. The Ten Commandments point us, the law points us to Jesus. That's why He came. It's not by our works. It's not by what we do. No. Mm -mm. 
we become children of God by putting our trust in Jesus to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He's already done it for us. Well, says Paul, now live your life the same way. Just as you have received Christ Jesus Lord, continue to live in him. Not by trying harder, folks, but by trusting Jesus to do what you can't do. When you trust Jesus, you're saying, Jesus, I can't pull this off by myself, but you can. Friends, there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more or any less. All you can do is trust him and find your identity in him. And as you do, he'll begin to live his life of love and joy and peace and kindness and patience and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness through you. He is Lord. And he is more than enough. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Let's just open our hands before the Lord. And let's ask those two questions. Take a moment just to reflect. Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what is it you want me to do about it? Let's take a moment. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.